Everybody else, you could turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We've got a lot to cover, so we're going to jump right into it, but I don't want you to forget, we're going to zoom in on a bit of the personal story, uh, really with Nebuchadnezzar. He's been, he's been certainly a major player in the story thus far, but we're, gonna, uh, we're really going to hear from him and the way that, that God really uh, confronts him, and it's an incredible story. But I don't want you to forget the big context. We've entitled this series, A Pattern and a Promise, because the Bible tells us, as one pastor said, not just what happened but what always happens, it, it, it tells us this, this pattern of, of what continues to, to go on uh, in our world. And it may take different forms in different contexts, but it's always consistently the same pattern over and over again. And that is people try to make heaven on earth. People try to get all that they can out of this, earth, uh, out of this life, and it continually crumbles underneath them, lets them down, proves to be insufficient. And yet God is present saying, hey, my kingdom is everlasting. My kingdom is what will give you life. And my body is what will give you the bread of life. And I give you living water. You'll never thirst again. And so there's this pattern of kingdoms coming, kingdoms, kingdoms going, kingdoms coming, kingdoms going. And we're gonna, we've seen that as we look back on history. And, and if we will take a moment to look forward into the future, we see the same thing, right? That, 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 that America is not eternal like no other country is like it will continue this pattern until Jesus decides that he's going to come back and establish the kingdom of heaven here on earth. So, so that's the big idea. And, and Daniel gives us, I think there's a particular purpose for the book of Daniel in our Bible. And, and that is one of the things that, that it is screaming out for us to take note of is that there is indeed a pattern to this world. And yet there is a promise from our God. And we need to make sure that we don't lose the promise in the midst of the chaos when it seems crazy Right, and we're we're looking at years here of these young men, Daniel and his friends, in Babylonian captivity. Right, so Daniel was in his teens, probably somewhere between twelve and seventeen, when he was taken into captivity, and uh, he is now somewhere between forty-five and fifty, probably. So we're talking, you know, around thirty to forty years that he's been in uh, this, you know, Babylonian situation, and. Uh, there's, there's, there's been some blessings from God, and certainly it's better than it could have been, but it's still, he's still serving a, a, a crazy guy named Nebuchadnezzar, who is a real man in history, and, and this Babylonian empire is, is indeed the empire that you studied about and know about uh, from your history books. And so uh, this is an incredible story. Don't lose sight of the large context and what God is inviting us to make note of in the midst of these personal stories. But today, we are going to see uh, we're really going to hear, in some ways, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. It is crazy. This man who is ruling the known world, uh, just spoiler alert, turns into an animal. I don't know if you got your own spirit animal or if you thought about that or heard that. Or uh, Anybody brave enough to say they've taken one of those tests to find out what their spirit animal was? It's okay. We can tell, you can tell me later. But, you know, you might you know, really think that's cool and, you know, wish you would that, listen, this guy... <laughs> turns into an animal. It's crazy. So let's just get into it. Deuteron or I'm sorry, not Deuteronomy, Daniel chapter 4. Uh, we're going to read it. We're going to preach through it as we go. we got a lot to cover, so you can pray for me. Um, but we're going we're gonna to try to move quickly. So Daniel chapter 4 starts out like this. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. And it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Now, this is a peculiar opening, so much so that the, 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 he, the guy who was translating or was uh, putting the numbers in the chapters, I don't know if you know, the Bible wasn't written that way originally. Um, these were added later. And the guy that was doing that in the Hebrew actually thought this initial passage went with chapter three. He thought that, you know, because normally, this is what we're going to hear, is this is sort of a prologue-sounding thing where he's giving credit to what has happened. But in reality, this is sort of him coming back and saying, hey, this is what's going on. So what, what you're going to see is that Nebuchadnezzar gets, uh, you know, confronted by God, knocked off of his throne, out into his front yard, eating grass like an animal. For seven years, this guy goes out of his mind. Like, not just, like, out of, you know, the palace for a vacation, like, out of his mind for seven years. He's eating grass in his front yard. So that's what's going to happen. And this is Nebuchadnezzar saying, hey, uh, this is, I want you to imagine the State of the Union address after he gets back from a seven-year crazy leave, right? This is him saying, I know, I know there's been some questions about where I've been, you know, uh, let me just tell you. So this is what he's doing. He's telling the story. It's incredible. Um, and so you're going to see, he's setting this up I thought it would be good, right? He's like, hey, 
I'm king. Uh, I thought you maybe owed you an explanation. Here's what has been going on. And, and you notice in this, he's saying what the most high God has done for me. If you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar, he has acknowledged Daniel's God, but as one of the gods, right? One of the gods and, and, a, and a powerful God to be sure. But Nebuchadnezzar's a polytheist, right? He's, he's got a pantheon of gods and he's added, you know, Daniel's God to, and our God to that, but he's never acknowledged him as Lord most high. He's never surrendered. In fact, he wants everybody to acknowledge him as Lord Most High, right? Nebuchadnezzar will acknowledge that there are other gods, but he wants everybody to acknowledge that he is the ultimate God, that he, like chapter before, commanded everybody worship him, like worship him, like the statue that he built of him commanded everybody bow down and worship him. So this is the guy. So you, you notice he's saying the Most High God, and then you're going to see as he gets into the story, he's, he's in some ways telling his testimony because he's going to go back to saying, oh yeah, Daniel serves one of those gods, but here... He's saying, hey, this is, this is what God has done for me. If you don't know the difference between a testimony and a biography, um, it's really about who you give credit to for the good things in your life, right? So everybody has a biography. Everybody has a story to tell. But a testimony is whenever you realize, oh, God has done these things for me and sometimes to me and on my behalf, and you give credit to him. And so this is a, an incredible story from Nebuchadnezzar, which seems to be at least a witness testimony. There's debate about it whether he got truly converted or not, and we will never know. But nonetheless, he is witnessing to God's glory. And so he says this. He says, verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That's been a theme that Nebuchadnezzar has struggled to get. He wanted his own kingdom to be an everlasting kingdom, right? God warned him in an earlier chapter say it, with a dream saying, hey, you're this guy. You're, you're the statue you get of gold, but there's going to be more kingdoms coming after you. He didn't embrace that, so he built a, whole, a statue of entire gold saying, no, no, I want my kingdom, my legacy to last forever. So Nebuchadnezzar struggled to get that. Anybody have something that God has tried to teach you over and over and over and over again? The title of today's sermon is Learning the Hard Way, right? So you want to learn what not to do from this sermon, spoiler alert. So as we're going through it, this is not a pattern for you to approach, rather something for you to learn by. Um, and so he says, God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. So that's the setup. Now he's going to tell us the story. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Now, that is an understatement if you know anything about this guy, right? Uh, I think we got a, a screenshot of his, of his kingdom. Um, this dude was ruling the, basically the known world at the, at the time. Uh, everything in green there is the Babylonian Empire. Like, it's modern-day Iraq is where his, uh, Babel, the city of Babylon sits, and, uh, but he's ruling everything around there, like everything he could see. He, he's conquered. He owns it. Like, if you remember back, it's sometimes we, we kind of have the Bible over here, and then we have our history books here. But if you remember back to this part of world history, like, there wasn't sovereign borders you know, where everybody just kind of respected one. Like in this day, it was like, hey, if my army can take yours, then I'm, I'm, I'm going to conquer your country, take your king and take your riches, plunder them. And, I, you know, I own you now. And, and Nebuchadnezzar was brilliant at this and, and had conquered, um, you know, this incredible kingdom. And, and so, yeah, he's at ease, right? He, um, you know, he's got this incredible palace. He's a ruler of the known world. He has a harem. Uh, he's got so much extra gold that he decided... What, what should, can you imagine that? Like, what should I do with all this? You know what? Let's make a statue of me, 90 feet, right? Like, he's got so much extra gold that that's what he's doing with it. Um, so, yeah, he's at ease. Literally, no one can touch this guy, right? No one's been able to conquer him. No, like, and, and I'm sure kingdoms tried, right? Nobody can touch this guy. Nobody can resist him. Nobody can stand before him. He fears no one. He fears no one. And in fact, everyone fears him, right? Except for these few Jewish guys who we get the story of Daniel. But um, it's an incredible life that he has. So here he says, I'm at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And I saw a dream. It made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. Here's the deal. The man that no one can get to, the man that no one can touch, God gets to him. God gets to him. It's incredible. Listen, sometimes we think, oh, that person's impenetrable, that a person doesn't want to be heard. We would never get a chance to hear that person. And there's a lot of debate in the Christian you know, world of theology about what happens to the people that you know, are so far removed, they never hear the gospel, or they're in, a, in an island or whatever, they're in a country that, that you know, we, the reality is we don't, we don't know because God could do whatever he wants. God could show up and speak however he wants. He's used donkeys, he's used 
like the wind and fire, like he can do whatever he wants. Now, what we know is no one's going to get to heaven except by the name of Jesus. And so he might send like a coconut to that guy on the island to tell the story of the gospel and that guy might receive Jesus and get to heaven. But unless he receives Jesus, he ain't getting to heaven, right? And you say, well, that man, anyway, that's a whole other debate. I don't have time for that. You can ask me about it later. But nonetheless, um, this guy is unapproachable. Nobody can walk in and tell him anything unless he's asked for them to come and tell him something. And yet, God gets to him. God gets to Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the known world, the Babylonian king who everybody fears. He's made everybody worship him. Nobody would dare speak a word to him that was not invited, and yet God gets to him through a dream. Listen, if you read, if you're in touch with missionaries, and we've shared some of these stories, we've got, uh, you know, we've got, you know, in fact, somebody who was just on stage leading, her brother is in a place um, that, man, people don't get to tell about Jesus freely. And yet what we see over and over again in those places is that God will show up through a dream. God will show up and, and rock somebody's world and, and just mess them up by revealing himself through a dream. And then he may say, hey, stay put. Like there's just crazy stories where God shows up in dreams, and that's exactly what he does for Nebuchadnezzar. So it alarms him. He says, I lay in bed, and the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. It freaked him out. Like, this is the guy who has everything. This is the guy who, uh, like, everything's at his disposal, pure life of comfort and power and influence, and yet this dream alarms him. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. So if you've been with us, you know about these guys before. This is common for uh, kings in this day and age to have sort of this staff of dream interpreters, this staff of astrologers that are interpreting the world through different things. It's not uncommon. Um, and, and he has these nonetheless. And, and we've seen that this is not the first time they've showed up in this story. Um, and and what, you, what you might start thinking is, and what good are these dudes, right? They're called wise men, but they never seem helpful, right? Every time we see them, they're like, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's like, hey, I got a dream, help me out. And they're like, we don't know, right? And, and, and some people kind of make fun of them there. And, and that's, I think, it's justified. Like they seem a little bit useless. They hold this office of wise men, but they're, they're never helpful when Nebuchadnezzar needs them. But, but I think it's actually more than that because knowing this guy, like, if they were really useless and they never were helpful for him, he would get rid of them, right? This is the guy who threatened, like he was going to kill them all because they couldn't tell him his dream back in uh, previous chapters. So, um, so here's what I think. I think that there were plenty of times when Nebuchadnezzar would just have a random dream. Anybody just have weird dreams? And you just wake up going, I don't know what that meant, right? Like, there was a rock laying on me and a snake around my, like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what your dreams are, right? But, but um, you know, you, just, you don't know what to make of it. Well, I think when he just has those sort of, like there's normal dreams that you might want to know. And he, I think he lobbed those up to those guys. They probably did a decent job of going, well, King, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, you were, you were dreaming about sombreros. It could have been like the, the beans and rice you ate. Like, probably don't think too hard about that one, King, right? Like he's got plenty of times whenever he's, he's got just kind of normal dreams or maybe even demon-inspired dreams, Right? Where Satan is influencing him and leading him in such a way. And those guys may indeed have power from their demonic influence to interpret those dreams. But when we see them, this is God's story. And when God shows up in a dream to Nebuchadnezzar, those guys are impotent. They're useless. They cannot interpret the dream that God gives. Right, So God is after his glory. And they have no ability to interpret these dreams. And so... What does he do? He has to call Daniel. Some of you might be thinking, why does he just keep Daniel around as the dream interpreter? Why does he even mess with these other guys? Just fire them and keep him close. Well, again, I think there's, a, there's, there's probably plenty of dreams we didn't hear about. And then secondly, I think Daniel is, is doing more important work, right? Those guys, they were okay at you know, interpreting their stars and stuff. Daniel is promoted to run Babylon. Right? He's promoted to run the university, if you will, of Babylon. So he's got more important work to do. But these guys, JV fails, so he's got to call in Daniel. Daniel is the guy. And Nebuchadnezzar says, man, I, I know, verse 8, uh, Belshazzar, that's Daniel's um, Babylonian name. And it's interesting because he, he calls him that. So he says, and Daniel came in before me who was named Belshazzar. So, and after the name of my God, this is crazy. This is Nebuchadnezzar's story. So th this is the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave to Daniel when he brought him as a teenager out of Jerusalem and into Babylon. Daniel's name Brought glory to Yahweh. God is my provider. This new name, Belteshazzar, is, is a reference to the pagan god Baal that Baal 
looks out for me. And, and so that's an attempt to change his identity, an attempt to, to take away his um, identity in Christ, in God, and yet Daniel and his friends never call one another that, right? But nonetheless, they refer to that in Babylon. But what's interesting is that you'll see Nebuchadnezzar prior to this moment, still calls Daniel Belteshazzar, right? That's his Babylonian name, but you're going to see later. And even in the midst of this story, this context, this testimony, you can kind of hear the, the, the first, you can hear the, the, um, the scene shift where he's calling him Daniel. So the, it's, it's just an interesting note there of how God changes Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And so he goes, hey, I know Daniel's got like the power, like he has a spirit of, uh, he says, you know, the holy gods, um, you know, this guy goes, hey, I know Daniel can do this. So I told him the dream, verse 9. And he says, oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. So this is Daniel's all those other guys' boss. And so he brings him in. He says, I know that you are the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. So here is his dream. Um, Here's what he's going to, uh, here's what he saw, and here's what he's going to lay it out. We'll see it repeated a couple different times. He says, so I see uh, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew, and it became strong, and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the earth. Now, that, that reached to heaven, that, the height, that, that has relevance here. If you've been paying attention to, to Daniel, you know that, that the, the, the kingdom of Babylon right, um, is the kingdom at this point, but it starts back in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, right, that, that this was this attempt for man to make a name for themselves, right, to, to reach to heaven and not need God and to posture themselves as, as a place of glory instead of worshiping God, and so this has been, that is what always happens, right, that's that pattern that we as men are always going to be seeking to, to get that glory for ourselves, and so indeed, um, Nebuchadnezzar has done much of that. He has made an incredible name for himself. He is known throughout the whole world. And so he is that tree. He is, this is what we're seeing. It's, it's indeed grown tall and it is strong. It's top reached to heaven, verse 11, and it's visible to the end of the whole earth. Verse 12, its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it and the birds of heaven lived in its branches and all of flesh was fed from it. Babylon was an incredible kingdom. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, it's an angel, came down from heaven and proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip it of its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze. Amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with a beast in the grass of the earth, and let this mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by decree of the watchers or the angels, the decisions by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men. And gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Now, in some ways, it's a pretty straightforward dream. And Daniel or, and Nebuchadnezzar probably could have been interpreted himself had he been willing to receive it, right? Had he been like at a place where his heart was soft and he was ready to hear those words, I think he probably could have put these things together because it's not the first time he's been warned that his kingdom's temporary, there is a king who's eternal, and he gives him any influence and power he has has been given by God. Nonetheless, this has alarmed Nebuchadnezzar yet once again. It has him shook to his core. He's worried. He's afraid. And so this is the situation. So he tells Daniel, uh, and he says, This is my dream uh, that I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the, interpre the interpretation. Because all wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. He goes, all right. That was my king, or that was my dream, Daniel. Nobody else was able to interpret it. I know you can, so let, let's, let's have it. Verse 19. Uh, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let, let not the dream of the interpretation alarm you. He says, answered and said, Daniel is going to answer him, but listen, Daniel's alarmed, and we need to make note of that just quickly. Daniel is alarmed. Why? Well, because I want you to put yourself in Daniel's position. Here you are in front of this crazy tyrant of a guy who 
you know, often flies off the handle and kills a bunch of people, right? This is the same guy who's just thrown Daniel's friends into a fire a few years before. The same guy who was ready to kill everybody who couldn't tell him his dream. Not just interpretation of his dream, but just couldn't tell him his dream. He's going to kill them all, right? This is this guy. And now you're standing before him, and, he t- and he's like, hey, I need you to interpret the dream for me. And you tell him the dream, and it doesn't take a genius to figure out this dream. And Daniel's going, man, this is, this is judgment, right? This is ju- like God has, is, is judging Nebuchadnezzar. And I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be excited to tell that guy, right, that he's being judged by God, right? There, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a discomfort there. It's not a super appealing job. Nobody's like, oh, I'll tell him. I'll tell the king he's about to, you know, he's about to be judged and turn into a beast. Like, no, nobody wants that gig. Nobody walks away from telling the king anything he didn't want to hear. Certainly not this sort of judgment. And so uh, it, it sort of reminds me of uh, Acts chapter 8. Uh, if you know about the Apostle Paul, if you know his previous life, he was a persecutor of Christians who killed Christians like regularly and was uh, putting them in jail. Like he was known to be a force, a terrorist, Osama bin Laden-like terrorist where everybody knew this guy was coming after Christians and God shows up and saves that dude on the road to Damascus, and it's a crazy story. And God goes to another guy named Ananias and says, hey, uh, you're up, buddy. You get to go tell the gospel to this guy named Saul. And Ananias is like, uh, no, like, I've heard what he does. I'm not, like, I'm, nobody's, like, running up to tell that guy anything. Like, he, he locks people up or he kills them. And, and he even says, like, God, I've, I've heard about him. I'm not real eager to go to him. And God uh, tells him, hey, hey, I got it. You go. You be faithful. I'll handle the rest. So, so this is where Daniel is. He's in a moment of this is not comfortable. This is not a message he's eager to share. And yet it is indeed the message that God has done uh, in his behalf. He's put him in this place, right? He knows this guy could fly off the handle. Even though he's full of faith, right? He still is alarmed by this situation. And so um, the king says, hey, hey, don't you be alarmed, Daniel. And Daniel goes, hey, uh, my Lord, and this is verse, end of verse 19. My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. He says, listen, this is, this is not a good dream, king, but there's an opportunity for you to avoid it. So let this be for those who hate you and for those who are against you, but here's what it means. And he goes on to explain to him, verse 20. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, that its tops his top reached to heaven and was visible to the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and fruit abundant and and which uh, was food for all, and under, the, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to, the, to heaven, and, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. So he says, yeah, you're, you're right, king, that, that, that's you. And because, verse 23, the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, and leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band from, of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven periods of time over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It's the decree of the Most High. He says, hey, my God is judging you, which has come upon my Lord, the king. Verse 25, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with dew of heaven. And and it's going to be seven periods of time. Seven years shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it was commanded that to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, that your kingdom shall be um, confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins. We'll get to that in just a moment. But the interpretation is, uh, yeah, king, like this is God's sort of final warning, right? He's told you before. He's displayed his power before. You have refused to repent. You've refused to humble yourself. And so he's coming. He's going to take you off the throne and you're going to, you're going to live outside. That's the whole do, you know, the do from heaven's going to be on him, right? The do, um, from the field, and he's going to eat the grass, right? Um, This portion is going to be with the beast, and it's going to be for seven years. So you're going to become a crazy man who lives outside, crawls around on the ground, eats grass, and the dude's going to fall on you each night. And like that, that's that's where this is headed, King. That's where this is headed. This is crazy. (laughs) It's a really crazy story, but that is what the dream means. And so 
Daniel interprets it for him. And then verse 27, listen to this. He goes, therefore, my king, let me counsel you. He says, this is bad news, king. That's where it's headed, but let me give you some advice. You can avoid this. This can be for your enemies and not for you, but you need to listen to me. Let me counsel you. Be, <clears throat> uh, let my counsel be acceptable to you. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. This is an incredibly bold gospel proclamation. Daniel just straight up shares the gospel with the most powerful man in the world who is known to kill anybody who says anything he doesn't like. Daniel says, you're being judged, king. But you can avoid this by repenting. Repentance means turning from your wickedness, turning from your sin, turning from being your God, doing what's right in your eyes, living life the way that you think you should live, doing whatever you want, hearing that God's word says to do this, but you know what? I don't care. I want to do it my way anyway. And, when, and that's what all of our heart's conditions are prior to Christ. But when we see Christ, we have an opportunity to either accept him, or reject him. To accept him means we acknowledge he's Lord, and I'm not going to keep being my own Lord, and that means I'm going to turn. Repentance means I'm going to turn from my ways and go the opposite direction. And so Daniel says, listen, repent by practicing righteousness. Break off your sins. Stop sinning. Practice righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, right? It's not a merciful man. He says you, you, can, you can become that. And perhaps God might lengthen your prosperity. Here's the deal. How many of you would have said that, Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, it sounds good hearing the story, right? But that's a crazy moment. Like, here, let's just take an honest inventory. Here, if you're here and you're a Christian, here's what we believe. We believe that we're created by a holy God, right? That life was good. He gave us the earth to inherit, and we rebelled against him. We deserve hell. That's what the Bible says, that we have sinned against him. All of us fall short of the glory of God. We deserve hell. That's where we're headed. And yet, God made a way. That God sent his only son. We just sang about it so that we could be saved. And that, that is indeed the gospel that we celebrate, that God stepped off of his throne. Instead of demanding that everybody bow down and worship him and just dealing with the consequences, he comes and, and, and lowers himself into our mess to make a way. That's the story of Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel is that we deserve hell, eternal wrath and damnation. That's where we're all headed apart from Christ. And Jesus comes to make a way. And that all who would call on his name, right? Anyone who would acknowledge that he is indeed a sinner, that, that I am a sinner and I need a savior. And I believe that Jesus is that savior because he died on a cross and witnesses saw him die. Witnesses saw him be put in a tomb. And we celebrated just a couple weeks ago that two days later he got up out of that tomb. He's alive. He sits at the right hand of the father. And one day we'll all stand before him in judgment. And if we believe in him, if we confess him as our savior, we can be saved. Save from that eternal hell. Save from that fire, right? That that is the good news of the gospel. That's what we believe. Amen? It's good news, church. That's why it's called the gospel. It means good news. And yet, are we willing to share it? Like, you think about that reality. I think it was the comedian, Penn Teller. I think it's Penn. Um, Magician, comedian, dude, like he, he's a hardcore atheist and he talks about Christians a lot. But one of, the things, one of the things he'll say, and you can look up this quote, he says, listen, if you really believe what you say you believe, then it's the most unloving thing you could do not to proselytize, meaning not to witness, not to tell people about your religion. Like if you say you believe what you say, if you believe what you say you believe, and yet you are not compelled to tell me about it, then you certainly don't love me. In fact, you hate me. You, are you tracking with me? You tracking with me the goodness of the gospel and yet our apathy toward sharing it with anybody is, is, is should be frightening to us. It should be sobering to us because here, here's Daniel with every reason to be afraid. Every reason to be afraid. Literally afraid for his life. And yet he speaks boldly the truth to the most powerful man in the world. So here's the deal. Daniel has every reason to think that Nebuchadnezzar won't believe. He's been told before. 
Right? He's been told before. Nebuchadnezzar has been confronted with God's power before, and he's not truly repented. He's not truly believed. And so many of us would write him off for that. Many of us would never share the gospel with someone like Nebuchadnezzar. Not only would we not have an opportunity, but even if we did, we would think, well, there's no way he'd believe, right? He's too far gone. He's too rich. What does he need God for? Like, he's too rich. He's too powerful. He has no need in his life. Or, or he's just straight up too crazy, right? Some of you have written people off. Like I, like, I can't even have, like, a conversation with them without them yelling at me about, you know, president or past president or somebody like they're just crazy like they don't want to talk about reality they're just out there right that's that's Nebuchadnezzar too right too sinful too rich like whatever you have attributed to like that person's too far fill in the blank well Nebuchadnezzar is yes yes and yes right he's all of those things he's straight up winning all of the competitions about who should not be saved or who's least likely to be saved Nebuchadnezzar is right there. I want you to imagine living in Babylon as a Jew, and you, and you hear somebody go, hey, pray for, pray for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's going to share the gospel with him. Right? What would you say? He'd be like, okay. Like, so we should pray for Daniel, because he's going to lose his head, right? Like, that's what, that's, that would be our response. So here's the, here's the deal. Here's, here's one of the questions. Who have you ruled out, or who have you given up on? Who have you ruled out? Who have you given up on? Because Daniel's been with this guy somewhere around 30-something, probably more years. He's faithfully served him. He's faithfully proclaimed the gospel at every opportunity. So you need to revisit that. Whoever you've ruled out, you need to revisit that. Because God is Lord over all, and no one is out of his reach. It is the power of God, not you, that is in the gospel. Never write off the power of the gospel at any circumstance. We, as his messengers, should share it boldly and let God handle the results. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We, as his people, should not be ashamed of the gospel. We should not be fearful about, its, about whether or not it'll be effective or not. We should simply share it and let him handle the results. Sometimes he does it in the moment. Sometimes it takes 30 years. I've seen both happen. I've told you stories about one of my, like, the guy walking up while me and my friend are working on his beater car. This guy's in the midst of drugs and a crazy relationship, and he goes, man, my life stinks. I'm working at a grocery store with a bachelor's degree in psychology. I don't know what I want to do. I might want to die. He's got all these stories, and we go, hey, Jesus, and he goes, yeah, I want that, and he prays, and we're like, whoa, whoa, I'm not sure you got it. Like, let's, maybe you need to think about it, and he's like, no, I'm in. Right? This guy's life's transformed. He moves out the next day. He never does another drug again. He's like praying for people in restaurants when they have a broken arm. He's got anointing oil in his pocket. Like that's that guy. Totally radically transformed. I had another buddy who was uh, way closer to me and he was a Jehovah's Witness and I, 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 I prayed for him and shared the gospel with him and it took three years. It took three years. And the Lord worked in his life and humbled him and brought him. So some of you have stories. You have people you've been praying for for 30 years. 40 years, maybe longer. Some of you live with those people. Some of you came here by yourself today because they wouldn't. Some of you, those are your kids. Some of you, those are your parents. Some of you, those are the people you work with. Like, who have you written off? You need to revisit that because to say that God's power is not able is blasphemous, and we need to revisit that. So let's keep going because God is going to show him just that, that no one <laughs> comes against God, and, and, and no, no one's winning that except the Lord. So verse 28 it says, all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. And at the end of 12 months, he was, hears it from Daniel. He understands the judgment. Daniel says, hey, you can avoid this by repenting. And he goes on, right? He goes on about his life. And here he is. He's, he's walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And I want you to just picture this scene. Like, this, this palace is incredible. Like, they, they tell us just the roof was large enough for a four-horse chariot to, to not only be up there, but to turn around. Like, it's an incredibly large palace. He's on the roof of it, and everything he can see, you remember the Lion King, right? Well, everything the shadow, er, yeah, everything the light touches is our kingdom. Like, this is him. Everything he could see, everything he surveys, this guy owns, right? The, they believe that, uh, if you've heard of the Hanging Gardens, which was one of the, the seven wonders of the ancient world, they believe he's probably in the midst of them right now, that that was on the, the, the roof of his palace, so this guy evidently had a wife who had come from like the Persia area and she missed the greenery. She missed the flowers, she missed the greenery. So he had this incredible uh, space built 
right? That makes your gondola and not like it makes it, you know, look pretty pitiful. He has this incredible outdoor space built. The hanging gardens become one of the ancient wonders, or the seven ancient wonders of the world. And here he's in the midst of that. It's just an incredible life. Again, he's already said, I was at ease. This is his life. And he's looking out over it. And I want you to hear what he says. He goes, verse 30, he goes, is, not, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? You hear that? You hear the, the language there. You hear the puff that where God has invited him to humble himself. God has warned him, and he goes, Daniel's God. Look at this. I did this, right? He is, is swelled up with pride. He is not seeing soberly because he is self-consumed. He believes indeed that he is above everyone. C.S. Lewis, that's, that's a theme. I didn't tell Allison to quote him, but he, he's a good source, so. Uh, he says in his book, Mere Christianity, he says that a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And as long as you're looking down, you're not going to see something that's above you. And you're like, well, I'm not Nebuchadnezzar. I don't have a pile of shit. Like, I, you know, I'm not that proud. Like, here's the deal. If you're always looking down on things and people, is that how you posture yourself? You're looking down on people? You're judging them? Comparing yourself to them? There's a reason that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So you can't receive the good news of the gospel until you're brought low, until you are humbled before a holy God, until you realize you can't stand before him. You, you have no right to stand before him. And as long as you're in that posture of pride, there, there will be no salvation for you. There will be no, no peace for you. Here's a man who has everything, and yet dreams are, are haunting him, freaking him out, leading him to this place where... He can't sleep. Now, it, listen, it would be tempting for us to judge Nebuchadnezzar here, right? I mean, come on, man. You've seen God at work, right? Like, as much as Daniel knows about Nebuchadnezzar and his power, Nebuchadnezzar knows about God and his power, doesn't he? Right? He saw, he was, he was wowed at how God saved these guys from a fire. He was wowed at how God's, uh, Daniel, uh, Daniel's God gave him the vision earlier in, in the book. And so he's seen this God at work. And yet, he's not responsive, he's not humble before him. And so, it's easy for us to sort of judge him, you know. God, Nebuchadnezzar should know that God is for real. God's not playing around here. And we could, should just say, man, why don't you repent, Nebuchadnezzar? Like, why don't you just take this warning? And yet, most of us, if we're honest, we relate way more to Nebuchadnezzar than we do to Daniel. Most of us, if we're honest, we're way more like Nebuchadnezzar than we are Daniel. We're trying to build heaven on earth. We're trying to get the most that we can out of this, and we've made some compromises along the way with our morality, with our integrity, right? We're, we're living outside of God's will for our life because we've believed this lie or pursued this thing, and, and we have been warned. You know you have, right? You know you've been warned. You know you've been cautioned. You've heard the word of God preached, and yet we resist repenting. We hold on to it, right? I want you to think about what does pride look like for you? What's your inner dialogue? Maybe it's like Nebuchadnezzar and you don't really think you need to repent because you, re you really think you're better than most people, right? You're looking down on other people and you're going, man, I'm, I'm, I'm not that bad. I know I got some problems. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not, you know, I'm not abandoning my kids. I'm not, I'm not in addiction. I'm not, you know, I'm not running off and, you know, losing all my money. I'm not, in, you know, fill in the blank. Like, whatever your inner dialogue is, like, you, you have, have convinced yourself that you don't need God, you don't need to repent because you're, you're doing all right, right? You're better than, fill in the blank, whoever that, whoever, whoever that is for you. Or maybe it looks different for you and you don't, you, you, you go the other way, right? That you think you don't deserve forgiveness because you're so filthy, you're so wretched, you're so far gone, right? That you're so, pitiful that you are so dirty that you have been in rebellion for so long that you think that you can never be worthy of forgiveness. And here's the deal. Both of those situations are pride, and both of them are assaulting to God's power. One is saying, I don't need it. The other is saying, it's not strong enough. And how dare you say that God is not strong enough, that his grace is not powerful enough to save you? You say, well, you don't know what I've done. I don't. You're right. But it does not matter. The cross was sufficient. 
Jesus paid the penalty for all sins, not just some, not just the, the, the kind of bad ones, all of them. The cross is sufficient. It is finished. So for you to say, I, well, I'm not worried, you know, the grace, the, the gospel, you know, really, it, it can't be for me, right? I don't, yeah, we probably have family members that be like, well, I, I couldn't go to church, right? The place would burn down, right? Like, I, and they're just, it's, it's such this, and it's said jokingly, but they also view themselves in, a, in that reality that they're so bad, that they're so far removed, that their life is such a mess that there's really no hope for them. Listen, Nebuchadnezzar, that joker is worse than you could ever imagine, Right? The, the, the crimes against humanity that he's, that he's perpetrated, the, the ways that he's, that he's used people, like, no, no, no. He, God's going to prove both of those wrong here with Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 31. <clears throat> while the words were still in the king's mouth, so while he's saying this, while he's reflecting on this, going, look at great Babylon. Didn't I do all this? While he's saying that, verse 31, there fell a voice from heaven, said, King Nebuchadnezzar, for you, it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men. This is your, you, you were warned. You shall be driven from among, you're going to be dwelling with the beast of the field. You're going to be made to eat the grass like an ox for seven years. Until they pass over, until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he Will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among them and he ate grass like an ox. I want you to picture this. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws. Long nails freak me out, especially among men. It's like, yeah, it's, I don't know. Uh, and it's, this guy's got long bird-like nails. His hair is long. And he's, he's out in the yard. Right? Like, where's king? He's out in the front yard. What's he doing? Eating grass? Why? We don't know, right? Like, he's, he's lost it, right? Like, there's, there's levels of crazy. This guy's, <laughs> like, this guy's out there, right? He's, he's beyond reason. He, he thinks he is an animal, that, and God has caused him to think that. There's a, there's a, a term for this, clinical, um, I don't know, lycanthropy, like, lycanthropy. I don't know, there's people in here that, that, whatever. It's when you start to believe you're an animal. It's really rare. It doesn't happen often, but this is what God allows Happen. It's, it's, it's basically a mental illness that God allows to happen to this guy for judgment. Here's the deal. God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Hey, no one's getting away with anything. No one's getting away with anything. For some of you, that's really, really bad news because you think you are. Others of you, that's really, really good news because justice has never been served for the things that were done to you. But nonetheless, no one's getting away with anything. Either in this life, if God chooses, or after death, justice will be served. Everyone will stand before the living God and will have to give an account, will have to face judgment for his deeds. Now listen, this may seem like a harsh judgment, but I want you to, before you think about like, the fact that God calls this joker to go into his yard and act like, a, like an animal, I want you to think about God's patience. How patient was God to warn him, right? To warn him and wait. He brings these young men, these young Jewish men into this kingdom. He does an incredible work through them multiple times and God warns him and then he waits. He warns them and then he waits. He warns him and he waits for, for at least 30 years, probably more. How many of you do not have like 30 minutes worth of patience with people, right? I don't have 30 seconds when I'm driving, I get to pass them or get back over in the other lane. Like, I got to go, right? Like, I don't, I don't have patience for that. 30 plus years, God warns, he waits. He warns, he waits. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. But he's also a God who's rich in mercy. He's slow to anger. And he's rich in steadfast love. This incredible display of, of patience and grace from our God. And, and, and if you have questions about mental illness, like we, like, just a quick aside, like, sometimes, like, sometimes you, you got stuff going on, you're out of balance, like, and, and sometimes it's, you, you simply need medicine, right? And we're pro that. Like, sometimes you're, you're out of balance, and you may just, you may need medicine to get you, like, back in, 
and, 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 you're, and you're good. Other times, you, you know, something's going on mentally and you need a therapist, right? You need, you need good counseling, biblical gospel-based counseling. Like, we're pro that. We have a couple that, that literally house in our building here. Um, like, we're, we're pro that. Sometimes you need that. Other times, you just need straight-up good old-fashioned deliverance, right? Other times, there is indeed oppression from the spiritual world that, that just needs to be cast out. And so I, I don't have time to go into that a ton. You can certainly see me afterwards, but, but, but you just need to know, like, this is, this is not just some fables, not some fairy tale, fairy tale deal. This is real life, and this was this guy for seven years. Seven years. Now, here's the deal. There's a difference between being humiliated and being humbled, right? Because life can humiliate you, right? Life can just expose you, find you with no explanation. It can humiliate you. It can bring you to your knees, but only you like, can receive the power of God to be humbled. Only you can make that shift to, to become humble. Verse 34, we see an incredible repentance from Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of my days, the end of those seven years, Nebuchadnezzar, he said, I, Nebuchadnezzar, is me. This is a story, remember? I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him for who lives forever. Amen. All right, this, this guy spent seven years in his yard, eating the grass, growing crazy nails. He looks up, acknowledges that God is the king. Acknowledges that he's not, that God doesn't have to bow to him and his people. Like, you know, he's king of kings. And in that moment, right, that's the shift from pride, right? He's no longer looking down. Like, God takes this guy who's always looking down on everybody else, and he puts him on his face on the ground for seven years. And then he lifts his head. And he acknowledges God, and his reason returns to him, right? And then we're going to come back. He's going to give this praise, but I want to get to the end here and then come back and end with, with his testimony there. And so he, he's going to say, man, God is awesome. That's my, that's, that's my quick paraphrase of that. We'll come back to the end of 34 and verse 35. And, and, and 36, and at the same time, my reason returned to me, and, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and more greatness even was added to me. And now I never can, he gets his job back. That's a little bold, right? Like, I'm not saying you can't be restored, but after seven years in the yard, bro, you're going to sit on the bench for a minute. Like, we're going we're to make sure you ain't doing that mess again, right? We're going we're to make you prove that for just, at least a minute, right? You're like, no, 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 buddy, we're glad you're back, but you just, like, read a book for a minute. Like, we, don't, don't get your claws out again. Like, we just, like I'm not eager to put that guy back in, in, the, in the throne, but that's what happens. Um, verse 37, now I'd never Nebuchadnezzar praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Man, our God is awesome. Our God is awesome. You see what he did to that dude? This is the ruler of the known world. He puts him on his face, in his yard, eating grass, crazy hair, feather things, long nails. Humbled him for seven years. And this guy's now singing the praise of the most high God. It's incredible. It's incredible. Here's the deal. You're here. You're a sinner. You know. You know you need to be saved. You know you need to, to surrender. Like, it's simple. You can do it the hard way. He'll get his glory. You'll understand. Your knee will bow. You understand that, right? Your knee will bow. But the invitation is to do it on this side of eternity where there's still mercy and grace. That's the invitation. That's the good news of the gospel. Lift your head. Acknowledge God is God and you are not. Acknowledge you're a sinner who needs a Savior, that Jesus is that Savior. The Bible says you'll be saved. It's an incredible promise, but that is indeed the good news of the gospel. Now I want to go back. I want to go back to the end of verse 34 and 35. I want you to hear Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. He says, my reason returned to me, and I bless the Most High, and I praise and honor him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. He is eternal. There is a God. You will stand before him. He is eternal. <clears throat> his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. You are Nothing. You don't stand before God and tell him how good of a person you've been. You don't stand before God with some kind of clout and think that the good's going to outweigh the bad. No, no, no. You are nothing. And all of us, that's not just you, that's, that's me included. Like all of us are accounted as nothing before our holy God. He does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the 
inhabitants of the earth. No one could stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nobody's going to stand before God and go, wait, wait, wait. I don't think you were out of line on that one. Wait, wait, wait. I, I think you need to rehear my case. No, no, no. There will be no, nobody who dare open their mouth before the throne of God. We will all hit our knees. We will all cry out for mercy, just like Isaiah did when he got a vision of it in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm from a people of unclean lips. You will realize in that moment. Realize it now. There's grace for you. Realize it later in that moment. You'll realize, man, there is nobody who can stand before this God. There's nobody. So here's the deal. Two things for us quickly as we close. Don't stop sharing the gospel. And if you haven't started, start. But don't stop. Don't ever give up. Right? Don't stop sharing the gospel with anybody. If he could speak through all of the stuff and the noise and the riches and the power in Nebuchadnezzar's life, he could save your friends, your family, your kids, your spouse, your boss. He can save them. He is able. So don't stop sharing the gospel. It may take 30 years. It may take 50 years. Who knows? But don't stop sharing the gospel. To stop resisting God in your sin. Stop it. Realize that you will stand before him. You will feel laughably small before him. He does whatever he wishes. No one can stand before and reason with him. And you need to know that. You need to acknowledge that. If you're like Nebuchadnezzar, here's, here's the deal. Some, many of you, as we close, many of you grew up in Southern Illinois. You grew up in Bible Belt. You've heard the good news of the gospel. You know that you're headed to hell without Jesus. And you prayed some prayer years ago to be saved. And you, but, but here's the deal. You know you were never saved. You know there was no change in you. You know you never humbled yourself. You know you're not worshiping God. You know you've never been transformed, and you keep resisting him. You keep resisting. You know you need to confess, repent, rededicate, whatever you want to call it. You know you need to bow down and humble yourself before God. You've known for years you're not a Christian. Like, I, I don't know your story, but, but here's the deal. Stop playing with God. Stop pretending you've got more time. Hebrews says, man, don't, don't harden your heart. Today's the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart anymore. Some of you, listen, I've heard stories of pastors' wives getting saved after years in ministry. Deacons, elders of churches that thought they were, like, and I'm not here to, like, freak you out and, like, cause you to question your salvation, but you need to look at your salvation. And you need to take a strong look and realize that, man, if, if I've never humbled myself before the living God, this, this Christianity thing is not a religion thing. It's not something I do, and, and hopefully I've done it enough that I get a pass into heaven. No, no, no. It, it's a deal of, of recognizing you're a sinner. You need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. All who bow before him, cry out to him as Lord, on this side of eternity will be saved, but all who don't will bow to him and will in, spend eternity in hell. That is the truth of the gospel. That is the truth of the good news. Uh, and yet, so many of us Take that for granted. You, you, you're, you're fearful of what, what people would think. Well, you've been coming to church for years. Or you're fearful, what, you know, like your kids think. It doesn't matter. You need to roll all that on up to what God thinks and what God knows. And then you need to respond accordingly. Don't stop sharing the gospel. And do stop playing with God. Do stop half-heartedly confessing that he's king. Humble yourself. Fall on your knees today. Let's pray. God, be big and help us. We need you to bring about repentance in our hard hearts. We need you to give us hope to keep preaching, to keep sharing, to keep praying. So we ask that you would come and do that work, Lord. For those who are suffering and struggling here today, I pray that you would do a work of redemption and, and, and of setting people free and just moving powerfully in this place. We look to you and ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen.